Amen. Go ahead then and let us look at Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our trek through this gospel. And we're confronted with what opens the most important question that anyone can ask. What can I do to get eternal life? Or you could frame it another way. How can I live forever? How can I be right with God? How can I get to heaven? And how could I ever be sure that I would get there, that I would escape the judgment, eye, and wrath of God? There's no more important question than this, is there? That is, if we are more than bodies, if we are more than just matter and atoms, if we have souls, and we do, and if there is life after death, if there is existence after the grave, and there is, if we are creatures, and there is a God, and there is heaven and hell, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, then there is no greater question than you can possibly ask than what must I do to be saved? How can I have eternal life? How can I be forgiven? How can I be spared the justice of God? But then our text opens with this startling revelation. No matter what you do, you cannot save yourself. No matter what you do. There's nothing you can do. It's impossible. As much as salvation, eternal life, depends upon you, there is no hope. None. And yet, this is precisely where the goodness of the gospel comes to bear, doesn't it? That in Jesus Christ, he came from heaven down to earth to do what you could never do. Make a sinful soul like you redeemed and forgiven and be granted eternal life. And that is true that all that depend upon him, for all that look to him in faith, and that's the word we find this morning. No matter what you do, you cannot save yourself. It is impossible. It's not difficult. It's not just hard. It's not a 1% chance or a 0.00001% chance. Impossible. So jettison, cast aside self-reliance, Throw aside self-righteousness, self-assurance, self-justification. All these attempts really at what? Self-salvation. You need to throw them all aside and rest again or for the first time on Christ alone. Rest on Christ to do the impossible, to save your sinful soul. What unfolds from our text this morning are four then like signs or guideposts, to lead you on the road to the gateway into eternal life, to lead you into the kingdom. Four directives, four commands that lead you to eternal life. And the first one is this, reject your self-righteous efforts. Verses 16 and 17. Reject your own labors, your own works, your own merits to try and save yourself to try and get God's attention, to, to, to earn his favor, to try and get on his good graces, there is no good you can offer him. And this is highlighted for us as the text opens with this incredible contrast of characters. So last week, if you recall, we ended with this look at children. Children, as we saw, they are humble, uh, they're helpless, they are, they're weak, they offer nothing, they can't contribute anything, really certainly to one building a kingdom. And, and that's why the disciples, right, you remember, as they're trying to bring the children to be blessed, the disciples come and say, no, 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 get these children away. Don't bother Jesus with them. He has more important things to do. And yet then Christ came and rebuked his own disciples to say, no, you don't get it, guys. This is the thing. 
My kingdom, Jesus says, it's not about who's strong. It's not about who's smart. It's not about who's rich and who's famous or who offers something. Those kind of people that think they have something, they are not prime candidates to be my disciples. But those who are like children are. Those who are humble. Those who have nothing to offer. Namely, it's those who see they need. They need Jesus. Those are the ones that can be my disciples. And so contrast them, this picture of humble children, with this next character we meet, the rich young ruler. And we pick this term for him if you compile all the details about him as we read about this in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel. So Mark mentions, evidently, this man's very rich. Matthew's gospel, of course, tells us in verse 22 that he's a young man. And then Luke's gospel notes that this guy is a ruler of sorts. And you go and study Luke's gospel and look up his use of the term ruler, we have reason to think he's talking about a religious ruler. This is a Jewish ruler. This is an up-and-coming young man, probably even in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Judaism. And in short, then, this guy was coming to Jesus. This guy was coming to him. He's what everyone in Judaism wanted to be. He was the envy of everyone else. He was young. He was rich. He was influential. He's like the young pastor of a rapidly growing church. He's the small group leader that's, that's vaulting up the, the influence ladder at work and church. Everybody's looking up to him. He's got everything going for him. And beyond this, there appears to be even a spiritual earnestness in him. He's concerned about the right things. He's concerned about God and spiritual things. He's concerned about, as we've opened, the most important questions in life. Look at verse 16 now, finally. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Mark's gospel underscores for us, indeed, indeed, how spiritually earnest this guy is. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus. He got low. He bowed down to him. It's like he's grabbing his robe, pleading with him. He's desperate. Good teacher, what must I do? I got to know the answer to this question. It's pressing on him. He knows as he possesses, it seems, all that this life offers, that this can't be it, that there must be more. He needs assurances about what happens after I die and we get to the next life. And yet, even though he has these admirable and right concerns, the very question the rich man asks betrays him. It reveals that he has little understanding of real religion and genuine faith. He's got the right aim. He's got the right concern. He should be concerned about eternal life. I mean, many today don't want to think about that question at all. They don't want to think about what's going to happen after I die. What's going to happen after this life is over? You just can't know, so don't even think about it. It's the lie we hear. That's a dangerous apathy that this man does not share. Nevertheless, the question he asks tips his hand, again, that he's far from genuine faith. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And two faulty assumptions surface from his question. First of all, he assumes that he is good. And second, he assumes that he can do good in some way to get eternal life. 
And Jesus exposes each assumption in turn for the falsity that it is. First, Jesus exposes the man's really ignorant view about goodness. And he does so just by a simple question. Our teacher is so masterful. Look at verse 17. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Right away, Jesus' question back to this guy should have been a hint. Dude, you're barking up the wrong tree. You don't know what you're talking about. Why do you ask me what is good? Sir, good doesn't mean what you think it means. When you're talking about eternal life, when you're talking about salvation, eternity, safety before the judgment of God, see, that's a kind of goodness that transcends all earthly categories and comparisons. If you're asking about eternal life, you're asking about heaven, you're asking about the dwelling place of God, where you will meet the Almighty forever. You're asking about how do I get to the place where God lives? And now you're asking about what is good? Well, there's only one who is perfectly good, one who is perfectly right, one who is perfectly righteous, and it's God. That is, now you might look good when you compare yourself to others. I'm not a druggie. I don't sleep around. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't get in much trouble. I don't even curse. I go to church. I pay my tithe. The trouble is, your fellow humans are not the standard. It's like you go to the store and you're not being too particular and you just grab a bag of apples and you take them home and you're getting ready to have one. You open up the bag and then you realize, wow, they're all rotten. Now, at that point, you could open up the bag and you could carefully inspect each one and you could go, oh, look at this one. It's not nearly as rotten as that one. Sure, but they're all rotten. None of them are good. None of them are worth eating. Goodness is not a standard you define by looking around at all the fellow rotten apples. You got to go to the very standard of good, and it's God, and He stands alone. That question, really, which is an answer should have halted the rich young ruler right there. What good thing can I do? You just can't. You just can't. And why not? Because you're not good. And there's no exceptions to this. Paul, quoting from the Psalms in Romans 3, says, there's no one who does good, not even one. To every objector that says, yeah, that's true about everybody else but me. No, not one. Now, beyond merely telling the man this, Jesus, the expert teacher, he's going to show it and demonstrate it for him. And so first off, he points him to the mirror of the law of God. This reflection of the character of God broadcast against our sinful selves to show us how far we fall, to show us how good we are not. And so he says in verse 17, okay, if you want to enter life, Keep God's commands. Keep the commandments. If you don't want to take my word for it, that there's only one who is good and it's not you, and you want to do something, you really want to try at this, 
Try and obey God's laws. If you're going to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, by the way, does Jesus tell him this because one can really get to heaven by just keeping the commands of God? No. And that was never the reason God gave the law, ever. The law was never given or intended to be a ladder to climb your way up into God's approval. God's commands are not given as a way for you to make up for your sins and your failures. What is it for then? God's law is to bring light. It's like a spotlight to show your imperfections and your sins. It turns on the light of your dark heart to show how wicked things really are that you couldn't see in the dark. Or as Paul says again in Romans 3, for through the law comes the knowledge, the awareness, the cognizance, the awareness of sin. That perfect law shows like a mirror all our imperfections. Shows how good we are not. And namely, that all of our attempts at obedience, our attempts at being good, what we find as we look at the law, they're just short-circuited from the start. Such that the more laws you try and take on, the harder you try and obey, you guess what you'll find? The more you fail over and over again. You take on a law, and what's the answer that comes out of the equation? You're not good. Take on another law, what do you find out? You're not good. Again, you're not good. Again, you're not good. You'll never attain to a good standing with God by just trying more, doing more. Not by being more religious. You can never be religious enough. Not by being more obedient. You can never be perfectly obedient. What good deed can you do? You'll never be good enough by that perfect standard. He said there's only one who is good. And so what's the result? His word is stop trying. Stop pretending you can be righteous on your own. His goodness is not something so shallow, so surface level, so momentary that you can get there. It's a goodness that is perfect, untainted in every desire, and it's forever. Put down your vain attempts to try and justify yourself, to try and pretend you're good like God. Stop trying to please Him by your own works. It'll never work. You'll never get there. Reject your what must then be self-righteous efforts to get eternal life by something you would do. That's the first guidepost leading you on the path to life. The next is this. It's related. Recognize your sinful failures. Verses 18 to 19. The next signpost that is on the road to eternal life is this. You need to recognize that you're a sinful failure. Again, we started to touch on this, but once you compare yourself to God's goodness, you got to recognize how far short you fall. And then we start to see, well, why is that? Why do we fall short? Why is it short-circuited right out of the gate? Why are we DQ'd as the gun goes off every time. Why? Because your root is wicked. You have a messed up heart. Now, the rich young ruler, he, he has heard, it seems like none of this. So as Jesus said, the law and the guy perfect, you want to be good even though there's only one? I got an idea. Keep the law. And the guy's like, you got it. I'm up to the keep the law challenge. It's the newest Christian movement. But he wants a little help you know, from this master teacher. Help me out a bit. Give me a strategy. Tell me, there's a lot of laws. Tell me where I can focus. What ones are really important? Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? 
He doesn't want to waste his time sweating the small stuff. And so Jesus goes right for the summary of the law, which, again, if he's a ruler even of the Jews, he, he knew all of these laws. This was nothing new. He's rehearsing for him the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 18 and 19. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting This is not all ten of the Ten Commandments, of course. He skips the first four. And those first four of the ten deal with how we relate to God directly. Commands like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image for worship. Or you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Instead, Jesus bypasses those right away. And he goes right to all the commands that deal with how you relate to others. Because obviously Jesus is pointing out that it's crucial for understanding your heart and worship before God. Jesus, with like a laser, focuses on those commands that deal with how do you treat others? Have you killed anyone? Have you taken another man's wife? Have you taken anything not yours? Have you lied? Have you always obeyed your parents? Or in other words, in summary, he has this other law from Leviticus. Have you loved others like you love yourself? I mean, surely you wouldn't want anyone to murder you or to take your wife or to take your stuff or lie to you or you you don't want your kids to disobey you. But have you ever done that to anyone else, ever? Or do you really love others? Because understand, to a religious leader and ruler like this, those are the crucial questions that need to expose his heart and maybe ours this morning. That is, to the religiously self-righteous, You're never going to get very far by working on those first four questions that deal with ritual and worship. You're not going to get very far asking them questions about their church attendance or how much they give to the church. Why not? Because they pride themselves on those things. That's the very thing why they think God loves them, because they are better Christians than other people. I'm always at church. I give a ton. You should see how much I give. Jesus then, he is quick to skip those ritual-oriented questions and expose the heart by looking at, well, but how do you treat others? Because again, Jesus is saying that is crucial. That reveals whether you truly worship and love God or not. Genuine faith, a love for God will, it must love others if it's genuine. Again, because later on, Jesus makes this very point. He's asked in Matthew 22, he's asked, what is the greatest, single greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus gives the right answer. Of course he does, right? And he quotes Deuteronomy. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. But he doesn't have a period there. Jesus doesn't finish. He then immediately and necessarily goes and says this, Matthew 22, verse 39, and the second is like it. He wasn't asked about what the second one was, but he tells him directly what is the second because it goes with the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They go hand in hand. The law hangs on these and they hang together. Jesus' point, you can't tell me that you love God and you don't love your neighbor. You can't tell me you love a God, First John says, who you can't see and that you don't love your brother who you do see. It doesn't work. 
It's hypocrisy. You're trying to fool yourself. And so by passing, bypassing these first four vertically oriented commandments in the ten that are all about how you relate to God, he goes right for the horizontal commandments and says, but do you love others like you love yourself? And so we have to stop with that own question for us. How about you? Do you love others? Or are you more in love with yourself, putting you first? You're more in love with how superiorly you worship God instead of others. How much a better Christian you are compared to them. And so you see, by these commands, Jesus reveals the heart. He's exposing what is there. Like he did earlier, if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There Jesus shows us, it's never been, and it's not about the mere letter of the law. The law is exposing what is in your heart. And so some of these very commands that he rehearsed for the rich young ruler, he brings out the import of those in Matthew chapter 5. So again, it's not enough for you merely to obey the letter of the law and not kill people, as good as that is, of course. But Jesus exposed the evil of the heart when he adds this, But I say to you, Matthew 5, 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother, merely angry with his brother, you're going to be liable to the judgment. Similarly, it's not enough to refrain from physical adultery, but your heart needs to root out those evil lusts and desires. Again, hear Jesus on this. This is Matthew 5, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, rich young ruler, avowed Christian and faithful church attender, do you really love God? Are you good? Do you serve Him aright? Well, answer honestly this question. Do you love others? That's where you can find the answer. Do you seek others best first? Are you always sure to do good to others? even at your own detriment? Have you really put selfishness to death? Have you rooted out all desires to take advantage of others? Do you love others as yourself all the time without fail? That's what God's perfect goodness calls for. And if you could answer yes to that, you know what that means? You're good like God. You know what that also means? You're either lying or you're so deluded you can't even see your sinfulness. We go down the road of life, not when we look to eternal life. We're going down the road to eternal life, not as we look at God's law and we pretend and lie to ourselves, oh yeah, I perfectly obey that. That's not where life is found. Life is found is when you're honest and you see that you have terrible failures. The third signpost we come to is this, down the way of life. You must then renounce your wayward heart. In other words, Life is found as you distrust yourself, as you die to yourself. You renounce yourself, and then you so cast yourself on Christ because you got nowhere else to go. That's faith. That's reliance. That's trust. That's belief. That saves. And that is not at all where this young man is at. For as Jesus even lists these piercing laws, again, that expose our selfishness, this guy, he's unfazed. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What? <laughs> no, no, I do that. 
It's like element. I learned that as a child, the Ten Commandments. That's Judaism, true religion, Christianity. That's 101. No, no, I'm a rich young ruler. I'm ready for my PhD in eternal life. But even though he's kept all these laws, he still says, what do I still lack? Verse 20. Even in all of his self-righteousness, he still knows something's missing. He can't get assurance. He just can't. And so you got to credit the man here. He does know something's amiss. And what's missing? It's genuine faith. Real trust. A trust in God above all. A genuine love in God that loves him more than anything else. And as we'll see for this man, his idol, the thing he loved more than anything else seemingly, was his riches. And it was keeping him out of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus exposes next with these few more diagnostic questions. Verse 21. Okay, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You want to be perfect? You want eternal life? Listen, it's easy. I just got three steps for you. Three commands. First, you got to go back home. Second, you just go sell everything you have. And then three, give it all away. One, two, three, heaven's for me. It's just three simple little commands. And in themselves, they're not hard to do. He didn't tell him, you need to go to the moon. He didn't tell him, swim the greatest ocean. He told him pretty simply, stuff he's very manageable. Go home, sell your stuff, give it away to the poor, and follow me. That's it. And not only are these commands rather simple, but the reward that he promises if he would do it is invaluable. It's priceless. He promises him eternal life, heavenly rewards. Go, verse 21, sell and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And these are not earthly treasures then, are they? They're heavenly treasures. That means they're treasures that cannot be tainted that will not wear out, that will not rub off. They will never grow old. They will never be corrupted. They will never fade. These are rewards that can't be stolen, lost, or damaged. These are the priceless treasures of heaven. Eternal life. Really, this is what you were made for. You were created by God to enjoy him forever. What is this treasure? It's God. And he offers himself. Just do these little things and I will be with you forever. There's no greater treasure than this. God himself. But then note the rich young ruler's shocking response. Verse 22. When the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You just want to like jump in the story, don't you? Like grab the guy by the collar and be, what are you doing? Where are you going? You want to chase him down? Are you crazy? Jesus just offered you heaven and you're going to hang on to all these trinkets and treasures that will one day all fade and burn? Are you nuts? It's like this. It's like you're playing a game of Monopoly against your kids. And you're crushing them. You got Boardwalk Park Place, hotels. You got the green ones nobody ever buys. You got hotels on those too. Your kids are doomed. They're going to give you every Monopoly dollar they have and mortgage everything. And then in this ridiculous story, Elon Musk comes in, the owner of Tesla. He says, hey, I got a deal for you. 
I will trade you all your Monopoly winnings. Boardwalk Park Place especially, I like those. Those little hotel things, all those little pieces of wood or plastic. I'll trade you all of that for real cash. Billions. And you're like, ah, no way. This game's really fun. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be over in just a few minutes. And all these Monopoly riches will just be gone. But I really like this game. Yes, and you are very, very stupid. Why would anyone do that? That, That's not rational. And yet Jesus offers heaven's eternal riches. And you're going to cling to all this stuff that's going to be just end when your brief life is over? What are you thinking? And that's the point. He's not. You're not if you're going to cling to the riches of this world. You're not thinking rationally. You are thinking, so to speak, with your heart. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was sad. Jesus, in one sense, made it easy. Here are these simple instructions. And yet he goes away sad. Why? For he had great possessions. He was rich. And it was a lot to let go. Namely because he loved those things far too much. And so with his supernatural insight, Jesus exposes the man's heart by just telling him, inviting him, just try and let those go and I'll give you eternal life. Just try and part with those. Part with your riches, I will give you life forever. But he loved them far too much. He loved all the things his money afforded him, the notoriety, the comfort, the earthly security, the respect, And he couldn't let it go. Not even for eternal life could he let it go. Again, those just simple commands, go, sell, give, they expose what his true God is, the true good in his life that he served, thought about, loved more than anything else, his money. He couldn't let him go. And so for you, is there something that you you could not possibly let go of? Is there something that you love so much or you find such security in, such comfort in, that you could never part with it, even if Jesus commanded you, even if Jesus promised you eternal life. If so, that thing's in your way of the pathway to eternal life. It's a stumbling block. It's holding you back, barring you from heaven. Because to finally get to it, really, heaven is for those that will trust and rely on Christ over everything. Christ's kingdom is comprised of people who rely on him, who serve him, who give him their allegiance above all others, above comfort, above country, above money, above family, above fame. They are those who will gladly say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. In other words, Jesus demands your all. He demands all of you, not just your Sundays. He demands to be Lord of your wallet. Lord of your bank account, Lord of your timesheet. He must be Lord of your free time, your family, your retirement, your job, your love life, your hobbies. They're all under his lordship. You see, it's a call, remember, to die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. And when you can pinpoint what those false gods are, those things that you trust and rely on more than Christ, you know what? At first, It's going to feel like dying with the thought that you have to let those go. 
And if, if that's what it feels like, I would die to let go of those things. You're starting to understand what Jesus is calling you to when he says, trust me. When he says, take up your cross and follow me. And such that I wouldn't be surprised then if you walked away from him. Jesus doesn't ask a lot. He asks for all. And if you can't trust him with that, if you can't trust him with your everything, you're not ready to follow him. But Rick, that's so hard. That's so hard. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can let it all go. Well, again, that's actually a good sign because you're listening to what Jesus is saying. And that means you can start to realize you can't do this on your own. This is not in your power. This is not in your capacity. Don't you see? You need someone to save you, redeem you. Not in your partnership because you're dead. You need someone to come for you. And that's what Jesus has done. And that is the final sign into eternal life. You need to rely upon God to do the impossible, to save a sinful soul like yours. Verses 23 through 26. Jesus remarks then and makes this outlandish illustration. Look at verses 23 through 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was shocking alone because they understood rich people, or they thought, rich people were those most loved by God. They were the ones most favored by God. That's why God gave them all that stuff. And it's hard for them to get to heaven? If it's hard for them, what does that mean for average Joe or Joanne Israelite? It's going to be tough. Such that they say in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. They were shocked. If it's going to be hard for a rich man, it's going to be impossible for us. Verse 25 again, who then can be saved? It's going to be near impossible for us. And in effect, that's exactly what Jesus' ridiculous illustration tells us that he gives in verse 24. He says this, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some interpreters have suggested that Jesus has in mind this smaller than normal city gate around the city of Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye Gate. It was so small, the camel would have to bend down on his knees and take, up all, take off all that he was carrying to get through this gate. The reasoning or picture goes, he would have to humble himself and get low and crawl into the kingdom. That's very cute. But the needle's eye gate wasn't around in Jesus' time, and it wouldn't be there for near a thousand years. There was no such gate. Seriously, Jesus has in mind a real full-size camel, think giant horse, that has to pass through the smallest of holes, a needle's eye. The point should be obvious. There is no way a horse is getting through that hole. No way. It's an obvious impossibility. And yet, as ridiculous as that all sounds, do you want to know what's even more outlandish? What is even more preposterous? For you to get into heaven. That's what's so crazy about what Jesus says. He says, it is easier. (laughs) It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to get into heaven. Jesus, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You're making this whole salvation thing sound like impossible? That like puts everybody out? And that's why they exclaim, who can be saved? We misheard you, right? You weren't talking about that, were you? Well, he reassures them in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, 
with man, this is impossible. No, you heard me right. As much as it rests in your hands and your powers and your belief and your works, salvation is impossible. You can't save yourself. You could never do enough good. You could never obey enough. It can't be done if it rests on you. It just can't. And of course, if things ended there, that is about the most hopeless message you can ever hear. That no matter what you do, you cannot save yourself. But praise Christ, that is not the last word. Look at verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now please, do not put this on coffee mugs and social media memes and t-shirts to so rip it from its context and so belittle it in that way. This truth, with God, all things are possible, isn't about overcoming your challenges in your personal life. This isn't about you getting into the college that you just don't think you can get into. This isn't about you getting a crazy promotion at work or completing a really difficult project to mention, with God, all things are possible. No, this truth, that with God, all things are possible, it's for those times when hard work would never do, when a doctor's skill would never do. It's for that time when good grades would never be enough. It's for those times when there are no options, there are no possibilities, but only impossibilities, and that's where this truth applies. When only a divine power can change things. And get this, the most impossible thing in all the world is for you, a guilty sinner, to be right with God. That's the most impossible thing. But also get this, because of Jesus Christ, it's not merely possible, but it's accomplished through his work on the cross. That place where Jesus took our sins and all those failings, where he was punished in our place, where he was crushed for our sins, punished for our wrongs, he was stripped, whipped, pierced, and torn, but for you, to bring you into the doors of eternal life. That's not a work you contribute to. There is no good deed that you could open those doors to do. With you, it all remains impossible, even if in any little percentage point it's dependent on you. Now, don't you see? Salvation is all the work of God. And so that means then it has to come to you not by works, but by faith. And that means it has to come as a gift, something purchased by God, namely Christ's blood, and then given to you if you will trust him. That's the only way the impossible with us becomes possible, when it's all of God. And so it is. This is where our confidence alone can lie, but with Christ. It all rides on Him. And if that be true, then three ramifications unfold from that glorious truth. Just briefly, first it's this. Do not wait until you're a better or until you're good enough to come to Christ He invites you to come now. He calls you now to come to him. He comes to you now as the one who can only do the impossible and deal with your sin. Come now. Don't clean yourself up first. Second, never assume you're beyond needing the gospel. Never assume you're beyond needing his death for you. Never assume that you are beyond needing his righteousness. As if to say, yes, thank you, Jesus, but I'm good now. No, If it depends on you, this whole salvation thing, again, is impossible. It's undone. But now in Christ, it's accomplished. But that was never because of you. And so to put those two ideas together, I really can't say it better than Jerry Bridges when he writes this. Our worst days are never so bad 
that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. It's all of grace, all the time. And if that be true, third, if He alone is the ground of our confidence and our assurance and the salvation rests on Him alone, then what treasures or trinkets or sins or desires are really worth clinging to instead of Him? Let it go and seize Christ, our treasure. Let's pray for this. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Christ, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we have loved unworthy things far too much. You give many good gifts in this world. We can praise you for those. But may we turn them back just as praise to you. May we be a humbled people, aware of our sin and knowing that we have no hope except for you to do the impossible. We pray even now you do the impossible in hardened hearts to work by your spirit to draw them and change them and to see the greatness of Christ as our Savior. And may we, as those shown mercy, as those who have been loved beyond measure, love others like you have loved us, showing you are indeed a God that redeems You're a God that forgives sin, and you're a God who's alive, changing hearts. And it's for the glory of Christ's name alone we pray. Amen.